All right, back on the Young Turks. We got some great guests for you guys, so let's get to it. Joining me in the studio now is Mariana Prieto. She's the designer for wildlife conservation. She's got a wild life, actually. <laughs> so she came up with that just like that right now. Okay, Mariana, great to see you. It's great to meet you. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you for coming in. Okay, you, you've done a lot of fascinating, trippy things. And I'm gonna ask you a curveball question in a second. So those are always fun. But first of all, what does it mean to be a designer for wildlife conservation? Okay, I'll try to keep this as short as possible, but it okay. always takes a little bit of time. Oh, yeah. The first question is, what is design, right? Mm -hmm. Then that could be a mean of plethora of things. And so if you boil down design to its essence, many times people think of it as something that makes things beautiful, right? It's connected to aesthetics and- um, Not if many, I design it, but yeah, okay. <laughs> if you design it. But in it, many it ways, it is true. The main thing that makes designers designers is that they find what is the thing that makes people tick? What is the human behavior behind our actions? And then you design for that. Mm -hmm. um, so hmm. furniture designers will create a beautiful couch because that's what people are looking for to put in their living rooms. Fashion designers look for trends because that's what people are also looking for. Totally get right? it, so what, how about wildlife? What are they looking for? So what I do is I'm a service designer. What I design is more service and programs. Um, in wildlife specifically, what I do is figure out how do people really feel about something? And then I design around that behavior as long as it has an impact on the wildlife around it. So that sounds really broad and vague. I'll narrow it down to a very specific example of a project I'm working on now where we are talking about the second largest threat to all animals in the world, which is called human wildlife conflict. Mm -hmm. And human wildlife conflict is when people and animals fight over space or over resources. Mm -hmm. So when you have your pet killed by a coyote or bears go through a trash can, that's mm -hmm. all human wildlife conflict. In East Africa, it's when elephants eat corn, when they destroy farmers' livelihoods by eating an entire acre of corn in one night. Mm -hmm. Because they love sweet, delicious. So how how do you fix that? That's that seems hard. So an organization because on the one hand I, I'm against the bear in my backyard. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, I don't want to hurt the bear. So what do we do? So in this case, this organization I'm working with called Wild Aid, they are developing an elephant repellent, which is uh -huh. exactly what it sounds like. It's a spray you put it on your crop, and it stops elephants from eating that crop. Oh, I thought it was going to be like a mace. I was like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not volunteering to, to, to do the repellent to the elephant. No way. <laughs> He'll yeah, remember. So, so you put it around, and then my job as a service designer is figuring out, well, who's going to make this, and who's going to buy this, and how much should it cost, and how will we scale it across all of Africa and all of Asia, so that all That's elephants can be stopped by this repellent. So that's an amazing job. I'm always amazed by the different things that people do, which then leads me to my wild, my curveball question. So you've done a lot of amazing things in your life. You helped to reduce teen pregnancies in Zambia, building social enterprises for female farmers in India, and supporting victims of a typhoon in the Philippines. And it goes on and on and on, right? So are you happy? <laughs> This is the best question of all. Yes, is a resounding yes. I am happy, especially now that I found my home with wild animals. Since I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was work with wild animals. My job did not exist, I must say. A designer in wildlife conservation does not exist. Yeah. But you either find a way or you find an excuse. 
And I'm not ready to find an excuse. Damn, Mariana's not playing. You either <laughs> find a way or you find an excuse. Can I write a book with that title? Jesus <laughs> Lord mercy, that's good. And I didn't know that you invented the entire category that is your profession. I'm working on it. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> a lot of wives in there. But the reason I asked is because I've now asked this of very wealthy people, very accomplished people in your standard ways of being accomplished. You know, lots of hit TV shows, etc. I've asked it of very famous people, and in my experience, the only people who answer yes that they're happy are people who actually help others. Like the famous don't say yes, the rich don't say yes, <laughs> right? Only the people who help others say yes. So it's fascinating. So out of all those different experiences, first of all, why'd you do it? Like, what what made you think? No, I'm not gonna be an investment banker. I don't know if that was on your board for possibilities, right? I'm not gonna be a lawyer or a doctor. I'm gonna go help female farmers in in India. It was a journey and I think that's true of most people who end up in a weird job. I don't think people will just wake up at night when you're 16 and say, I wanna be in some random weird job like a designer for wild animals. Um, it was a journey. My first dream was to be a car designer. I wanted to design Ferraris and Lamborghinis and- Oh, that's fun too, okay. <laughs> had nothing to do with helping people, right? Yeah. But little by little, you start to realize what makes you happy, what is interesting, what you're good at, what you're terrible at and you might avoid. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I have to say it was through the people that I met along the way and just trying things out, seeing what is more interesting and- so of all the different places you went and all the different projects you did, is there one that stands out for you as most impactful, interesting, uh, that you're like, well, you know, uh, I can't wait to tell my kids that story. <laughs> um, I worked for a year as a fellow at an, a design consultancy called IDEO.org. And it was spectacular because it was fast paced. We were on the road all the time. We were home for two weeks. We were flying on, on the road in Africa, India for three weeks. So it was two and three, two and three. Mm -hmm. I also met my husband during that time. Oh. So that makes it significant. Uh -huh. And we met in the field on the road, feeling sick and staying out in the bush and up till late. And it was, all right. it was a rough it job, but it was really great. Yeah, sometimes uh, the best things are in the toughest times. And uh, it's also a little schmoopy papoopy, so that's a very nice romantic story. <laughs> um, I talked to the executive producer of Seinfeld yesterday, so I got Seinfeld in the head. Um, so, uh, so how about the humanitarian work? How does it relate to the wildlife? It relates in that my real experience as a professional is in going into a community, finding what is the problem, finding what is it that people really want? What is it that they fear? And then designing something for them. So in the case of teenagers in Zambia, it was how can we tell a story about birth control in a way that makes sense to a teenage girl in the middle of Lusaka, right? And I was very good at finding that empathy and being able to connect with it and then designing for it. So in that case, we took all of the birth control methods and instead of talking immediately about side effects, for example. We turn the story around and so every method has a different character. So Miss Perfection is the pill because she likes everything on time and she loves routines. Right? Okay, fun, we're having fun. So that says a lot about the character, like the method and what it's, what it's about. Um, so this is an example of how design plays into it. Yes. 
with wildlife, it's still people. It's still not just communities. It's also people like us and our relationship with conservation. It's about understanding people and how can I design something that will encourage you to get closer to conservation. All right, another curveball. Uh, what is your favorite animal uh, in, in the wild? Go. Oh, in the wild? <laughs> yes. No, I you was can't gonna say horse. <laughs> uh, well, horse could maybe, okay. But you can't say like cat or dog. Okay. okay. How about a Mustang? It's a wild uh, horse. Okay, all right, Mustang's badass. Okay. <laughs> um, so I just one more out of curiosity, then I want to ask about how people can interact with this. Um, is where, where where did you grow up? Like I, I'm wondering like how this got into your head in the first place. I know the Lamborghini thing, but like <laughs> why design? So where did you grow up? I grew up in Colombia. Uh -huh. I'm from Bogota. Uh huh. I still spend a lot of time there, but I left full time Bogota in um, 2004 or so, and living there shaped me as wanting to do something for the world, for other people. My parents were both people who always taught me that that was the best way in which you could find happiness. Actually, it was exactly what you said. Oh, look at that, yeah. okay. Um, so now, uh, designforwildlife.org is your website. Who should go there? Is it people who are looking to design things for wildlife or like what, like you see what I'm saying? Yes, so it's really made for wildlife conservation organizations. Okay. So right. I work with organizations like WildAid I'm working with now and um, it's organizations that are already working with wild animals. They have phenomenal teams of biologists and scientists and they could use a hand in developing services for the communities of people that they work with for even fundraising because we could get a lot better at fundraising you understand why people donate or don't donate. Right, uh, and you do fundraising for those organizations? So what I would do in that case is design a project around how can we get more people to fund more conservation work. Mm -hmm. um, today, 97% of all donations in the United States go to anything else but animals. The 3% that go to animals, only one of that percent goes to international wildlife conservation. But in the entire world, 97% of that is coming from the United States. Oh, wow. So think really? about that for a second. That 1% comes from the US, funds 93% of all wildlife conservation projects worldwide. All right, so people can make so a big difference. We could do a lot more. We could do a lot more. All right. Uh, Mariana, uh, thank you so much for joining us, designforwildlife.org. Thank you for coming in, appreciate it. Thank you so much, it was great to be here. All right, rock and roll. <laughs> All right, when we come back, uh, back to uh, current day politics. Uh, so we'll discuss the disaster that's Trump and Giuliani when we return. All right, back on the Young Turks. Um, now, uh, let's go to our next guest. Uh, joining me now is Alex Nazarian. He is a national correspondent for Yahoo News. He's also the author of The Best People, Trump's Cabinet and the Siege on Washington. I'm pretty sure The Best People is a little sarcastic to say the least. Um, Alex, welcome to the Young Turks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I wanna get to your book in a second because it's actually very relevant to what's happening today. Uh, but you also had an interview with uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, and that's always a wild ride. Um, so before I even get into the substance of it, I'm gonna ask a funny question here. So out of all the different news outlets, how did you get Giuliani to talk to you? Um, I called him on the telephone. 
<laughs> so if I called him on the phone, would he go on a rampage with me too? Does he like is he doing that these days? I, I mean, look, I think I think part of I, I mean, I think the short answer is I'm sure he talked to you. He's trying to make his case. So he's talking to a lot of people. And as you know, from your time as a New Yorker, Rudy has always loved to talk. Now, what he has talked about has changed considerably in the many years since he has been, uh, you know, mayor of, uh, of New York. Um, but uh, he's still combative, argumentative. Um, you know, uh, he can be abrasive, uh, obviously. Uh, but he, but he loves to talk. Um, and uh, I actually just spoke to him a couple hours ago. He was getting into D.C. and uh, you know, he 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 said he wasn't sure if he would be able to comply with um, Lindsey Graham's request that he come and testify in the Senate. Um, uh, that he said he'd have to check with his client. That client, of course, being President Trump. Um, and he, but he also said, uh, you know, he had some some choice words for Democrats, uh, Adam Schiff in particular, and said that if they attempted to hold anyone in contempt, they'd make fools out of themselves. Um, and that that's been his that kind of pugnacious stance has been has marked his media appearances. I think pretty much for the last month, uh, actually much longer than that, uh, if you count the Mueller probe. So yeah, Rudy is being Rudy, I guess you could say. Well, is he? Well, that's why I asked the question, Alex. Because so normally, a guy in his situation would be really careful about his media appearances, right? But he seems like like you know him. You're a great reporter, and 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 he. But he knows a decent number of reporters, and he's he's going to all of them and saying things that appear to be significantly unhinged. And so I don't necessarily think this is the same old Rudy. I mean. He's calling people morons in an interview with you. He called somebody a nitwit. He said yes. in your interview that Adam Schiff was hiding the whistleblower under his skirt. I mean, these are not rational things that the lawyer for the president should say. I mean, I know this is a funny one to, to stick out, but he he talked about how he had got the highest grade in constitutional law. Yes. He was the federal prosecutor of the Southern District of New York. You don't have to talk about your grades in constitutional law. Is there something wrong with him? I, I can't speak to that, but I can tell you what I what I believe his strategy to be, which which is this: it is to 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 appeal to the to the Trump base and only to, to the Trump base, because if the base stays with Trump, the rest of the Republican Party will fear to um, contravene Trump in any way because they don't want the fury of the base directed at them. They remember what Trump, they remember the fate of you know Bob Corker, the senator, or Mark Sanford, the congressman who's now challenging Trump for uh, the nomination. Of, you know, they know that if the base is behind Trump, uh, that, that he's not going anywhere. So what's the easiest way to keep the base? It's to denounce Democrats, denounce the media, uh, denounce uh, all the favorite um, bugbears of the conservative movement, whether that's George Soros or Nancy Pelosi or Jerry Nadler. Um, so it's a pure base strategy um, from Giuliani. And it's a media strategy, which for the most part, as you noted, Jenk, that's not what a lawyer is paid to do. A lawyer shouldn't be making headlines. But Rudy, I think, believes that this is a winning strategy. Yeah, that's really interesting and a very good point. Um, so, 
now for the first time, I'm, uh, you've put it into doubt to me that he's lost his mind, because that was my going theory. Uh, but, but it's possible that they're playing to the base and they think, and this is me, not you, I know you're a reporter, I'm a commentator. They think the base is incredibly stupid, so if they act in a stupid way, the base will like it. And so like you say weird things like, ah, oh, hiding under a skirt, more on nitwit, etc. And like things that are usually not considered becoming uh, at that level. And and sure. some of it I don't mind. I mean, nitwit more, and I probably, I'm sure I say the same sure. things from the other side. But the other things that seem unhinged, but their base is unhinged. So maybe it's not that bad a strategy. Let, let me let me also let me just say something to that, which is you, you also have to remember there's conservative media um in in um for example, so Peter Schweitzer's books, right, which many on the political left dismiss as hit jobs, you know, Clinton Cash and his other books. But for people People on the right, um, those are um, serious investigative reports into corruption by the Clintons, the Bidens, and others. So when when Rudy talks about Peter Schweitzer, um, he's appealing to a readership that is already disposed to believe the Bidens are corrupt, the Clintons are corrupt. Um, so th so um, th they are informed, the base is informed, it's just informed in a very different way than... Um, a, a lot of other a lot a lot of other people, specifically people on the left, um, and um, I, I think we have to just be mindful of the fact that um, that uh, they um, th they have their own media outlets, um, just like the left has media outlets, and um, those those are feeding this narrative. And, and Giuliani, look. I'm not going to diagnose him. I'm not going to diagnose anyone, uh, but um, I, I do believe there is a method here. And, I, and I, this is in my book. I believe there's been a method to Trumpism all along. Um, I'm not saying I'm not endorsing the method. I'm not criticizing it, but I do believe there is a method. And remember, Jenk, um, uh, Giuliani did much the same thing in the Mueller probe, where he was saying things that seemed utterly outrageous, but that worked well with the base. Okay, I like that we're having a, a, a mini BBC moment. Uh, oh, I, yeah. Sorry, okay, I got kids too. I got kids too, and Ryan Grimm actually uh, puts them on his lap when we're doing the interviews. So, uh, so Alex, uh, but it's a great point that you're making about about the base and how they're appealing to it and Trumpism. And it, but it's interesting, and I'm not sure that I fully agree about whether it's a strategy. So let's dive into that, and that's uh, goes to your book uh, theme as well. So. What what do you think is the strategy that they're using uh, that that could potentially be politically savvy, even if you don't agree with it? Oh, I, listen, I I think I think the strategy is not. Uh, I think it's instinctual. I think it's I think it's driven by Trump's uncanny ability to understand the media cycle, which is which is one of his true gifts, and he spins everything up into a chaos and. That chaos is intolerable to the vast majority of people. I mean, most people can't take this level of breaking news every day, these seemingly uh, incredible revelations. But Trump actually thrives in this. Not only that, Jenk, but his government is doing plenty of things while we're all focused on Ukraine. What did um, you know, Kurt Volker say? What did Sund Sundland say? While we're looking at that, the rest of the government isn't sitting there checking Twitter. It's doing the work that he promised he would do. It's it's privatizing federal lands. It's expanding oil and gas rights. It's um, 
it's rolling back protections in education. Now, some people may agree with that, but what, what I think is really stunning is how little attention we're paying to, to that work. They're, they're installing judges, um, dozens and dozens of judges, um, that, that we simply are not able to pay, to pay attention to. So I think it's a shock and awe strategy. If you talk to the likes of you know, Steve Bannon, he'll, he'll say that this, you know, they will all but say this is, this is how we want, this is how we have always wanted to run things. Now, look, that could be revisionism. Um, yeah. But even if it is, I think it's not an inaccurate um, description of what has happened um, in this in this administration, which is they've utterly overwhelmed our ability to follow along. So, Alex, there's a lot of truth to that. In fact, today we did the story about how Betsy DeVos is in contempt of court uh, because uh, there's 160,000 students who sh were supposed to have their loans forgiven from scam uh, private uh, colleges, and she just won't forgive them. She just keeps sending them bills and and in a sense literally robbing them. And so that's happening while you know to some degree we're distracted. But but one more question at least that that's again relevant to today. So Trump I think you know again to the core of your book, my theory is that he picks people like a mob boss does, not based on competence, but based on loyalty. Because if you're doing things that are wrong, loyalty is a more important trait for you than being really competent at your job. But he does not return the loyalty. So there's a long list of people under Trump's bus. Jeff Sessions, Michael Cohen's in prison. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Giuliani is very confident that Trump's gonna stick by him. Really? Ask his former lawyer who's you know in a penitentiary. So and you know, I could list literally two dozen other people that he's thrown under the bus. So is there a point where that breaks and Mitch McConnell goes and talks to his caucus and goes, guys, we're next. So let's take him out before he takes us out. Jake, that's an excellent point. And I wanna just say, I genuinely enjoyed this this conversation. You've asked really good questions, but to answer that question, no. Not with, not when you mentioned McConnell, the judges are his, are his, are his raison d'etre, and that's what what if if Trump has done nothing else, he's been terrific for the right on judges. He's rolled back every well, he hasn't rolled back every regulation, but he's certainly tried um, uh, to roll back as many regulations as possible. So I don't see it. I mean, you know, the likes of Giuliani and McConnell are too crafty, too good at politics to to think that. You know, to sort of believe that Trump would ever be loyal to him, they understand. I, I, I do think uh, some people around him understand the nature of this relationship, and others like Pruitt did not, which is why they fell by the wayside. They thought the loyalty would be reciprocated, what it clearly was was never going to be, and, and Trump would jettison them as soon as um, it became necessary to do so. But uh, Rudy knows the game he's playing. McConnell knows. Um, I, I think some other lesser figures don't, and they're clearly learning, you know, and some of them, like Michael Cohen, are learning in prison. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, obviously, uh, the last chapter of the book, in a sense, has not been written yet. And we're yeah. all on pins and needles <laughs> waiting to see how that's going to go. But well, I hope you, um, I hope you continue to cover what this administration is doing uh, because, because Ukraine doesn't stop the rest of. What's happening? And again, your 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 viewers may agree or disagree with what it's doing, but they should know. Um, 
This 100%. administration didn't stop. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, that's important. Hundred percent. That's why we try to cover all the topics here too. And Alex, thanks so much for uh, coming in and talking to us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, and everybody, the book is the best people: Trump's cabinet and the siege on Washington. Thanks again. Okay, uh, so now uh, when we come back, uh, just for the members, uh, Sam Cedar uh, destroys Stephen Crowder. Uh, I don't even fully know the the level of destruction Anna does. She's going to present it to us. I believe we're going to all uh, greatly enjoy it. And then later on, on Old School, Kevin Smith joins me and Ben for a wild ride. That's at 9.30 Eastern. All of that for the members live, tyt.com slash join to become a member. We'll see you there.